Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Wednesday, August 25th, and we're talking about a SPAC that's been under the radar. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's head hero of hazardous humdrum hunches, Brian Feroldi. Brian, how you doing? Dylan, I'm doing great. We have yet another member-suggested show. I love it when people reach out to us and say, hey, what about this company? And we take a look, and it's worth talking about. Yeah, and, and in this case, we got uh, multiple notes about the same company, which to me says, you know, we, we probably should give this company uh, a run through. Uh, one of our listeners, Michael Roden, wanted to, to suggest you guys look at him and hers Health Inc. They're a young telehealth and medicine company founded in 2017 that focuses on things like hair loss, ED, birth control, and other areas of health that they feel don't get enough attention where stigmas can lead to people not getting treatment. Recently went public via a SPAC. Their gross profit margin has been around 70%. In part because of the pandemic, they grew revenues over a triple-digit percentage last year, and they basically only operate in the U.S., so it seems like there's some room for expansion. Uh, Despite being a young company with a growth stock with high margins, uh, they're not being valued like other techie growth stocks. I think they're an interesting business for a potential Wildcard Wednesday episode. And to that, Brian, we say... Here we are. It's Wildcard Wednesday. We're talking about it. Um, also want to give uh, member Axel uh, a shout out as well. Wrote in saying, found this little telehealth company called Hims, not yet profitable, uh, but in partnership with celebrities like JLo, Alex Rodriguez, and Miley Cyrus. Um, I mean, Brian, the the reality is our, our listeners did a great job kind of queuing up who this company is and what they do. We know just based on that, that it's in (laughs) telehealth, that it's founded a few years ago, that it's growing fast, that its gross margin is over 70%, and there's lots of room for growth. Thanks for doing a lot of the research for us. Yeah, always appreciate that. It's nice It's nice when uh, the initial lift is kind of done on our behalf. Um, if you want to get our attention, say high growth, high margin, founder-led. <laughs> yeah, and the founder-led was in all caps in Axel's email. So clearly someone who is a, a loyal listener of the show and knows the drill. Um, yeah, this, this company uh, was founded in 2017 uh, by Andrew Dudum and Hillary Coles. Uh, started out with a focus on men's health and has expanded out from there, um, and so uh, kind of kind of an early emphasis on sexual health and hair loss. Um, they expanded into women's health in late 2018 with a focus on birth control and other sexual health products. Uh, and in 2020, they have entered mental health services. And Brian, I, I I think that this is a business where if you look at the website or you look at you know any of their social media profiles, you kind of immediately know who the customer is. It's it's a very millennial focused consumer brand, um, and it has the look and feel of a lot of these direct to your door. We're removing the middleman, trying to make things seamless. Uh, millennial focused brands. Yeah, I'd never heard of this company before, but once you check them out, this company is clearly good at marketing to uh, millennials. If you look at their Instagram pages, they have each have over a hundred thousand followers, and they're they have strong meme game because they're it's it's a fun account uh, to follow. When you dig into their numbers, it's very clear who they're going after, and they say that seventy percent of their users are Gen X or younger, with millennials being their biggest age cohort. So their branding definitely says that they are going after that market and succeeding. 
Yeah, and I'll say, you know, I had heard about this company in part because I'd been served up ads for this company. I am probably just squarely in the market for this business. I'm uh I'm 30 and uh you know, so so kind of firmly in the millennial generation. Um you know, they're going after folks who have have purchasing power or maybe starting to age a little bit in my case hairline, I think it's just starting to creep back a little bit. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that I am being well-targeted with Hims ads. Um, and, and that's, you know, really, really where they're going after. They could expand, I think, beyond that at some point, but that's that's kind of the core market uh, that they are looking to serve. And really, uh, I mean, I think with this business, they're trying to kind of squarely address two problems, Brian. I think one is the, the stigmatism of some of the... Um, medicines and and treatments uh, that they tend to offer. So specifically talking about, you know, sexual health here um, and hair loss, um, the, the way that they talk about a lot of these things is, is kind of by the way type healthcare questions that patients have uh, when they are at the end of a routine physical or doctor's visit. You know, they it's actually the thing that they want to talk about desperately with their doctor, but they kind of have a hard time doing it. And so they wait until the end of the visit. Um, and so I think they very intentionally set themselves up to go for that. Um, they have, you know, discrete packaging. It's it's a lot um, it's a lot softer and more friendly than kind of the more clinical way that a lot of prescription stuff tends to be packaged. Yeah, I really like that focus. And there's definitely a stigma around these kind of products. So if they can make it easy for people that are having these questions and have these health problems to get connected to a provider that can uh, help to subscribe or come up with solutions, I really think that they're bringing to light an area of healthcare that isn't talked about a lot. Yeah, and then, and then I think the second thing they're kind of going after here is is just generally the convenience of telehealth and and the ability to uh, you know talk with the doctor um, or you know submit information and and be able to electronically get something done. That's a relatively simple um, prescription, um, something that you know based on a, a couple attributes you can kind of quickly get to the sense of okay, this is probably something that um, would be a good fit for this patient. Um, People are probably wondering immediately. Okay, well, you know, what does this look like in terms of medication? What kind of drugs are available? Uh, they are primarily known for making generic versions of mainstream drugs available very quickly. Um, and and you know, we mentioned the high gross margins before, Brian. That's a big part of the reason why. Yeah, they're taking products that exist elsewhere. They're rebranding them as either Hims or Hers, and then they're shipping them directly to the patient. So this is a platform that you can go to to not only connect with a provider but get access to to treatments. One interesting stat is that uh, there are a sizable number of millennials that are out there, which again is this company's core market, that currently do not have a primary care uh, uh, a physician. So this platform, by connecting them with the telehealth, not only can help to get them uh, connected to solutions, but can also provide them with a provider if they don't have one. Yeah, if you're bouncing around a little bit, moving from city to city, maybe you don't establish that relationship right away um, with with a primary care physician. Um, maybe it's still the you know the the hometown physician, uh, you know wherever you grew up. Um, I was certainly guilty of that, moving from Boston to DC uh, and taking a little time to get settled. Uh, you know, as I was I was moving around. Um, so you know the the pitch is pretty clear. It's a digital first solution. Um, you're generally going to be saving money if you're comparing to the brand name drugs. Uh, for this space. However, <clears throat> you're paying more than the flat out generic version of this. You're kind of getting like a white label version of that drug. And really, I think you're paying for the experience and the convenience with that. That's where they are. They're really allowed to pay uh, or charge that premium margin. Um, 
if you're looking at the key business metrics, just before we get into the the, the financials for this company, uh, they break things down. And, and what they really pay attention to is their average order value, uh, the net number of orders. And so this is basically their transactions minus anything related to refunds, um, and then their subscriptions. And so it may not be surprising to hear that a lot of the things that they are looking to address with folks tend to be ongoing or chronic issues. And so for the most part, uh, people that are interested in receiving medication uh, once are generally looking for that every month um, or looking for it on a steady cadence. And as investors, that's what we should be want to hearing. Not only did they establish relationships with their customers, but they're selling them products again and again and again. And once you are a customer of uh, of this company, as you said at the top of the show, they have been expanding rapidly into different different uh, product categories. So if you use them uh, for hair loss, for example, well, now you can also use them down the road potentially for primary care or for mental health or for anxiety or for skin care. So that's great to see that once they grab a customer and get them ordering, there's ways that they can upsell them over time. And the numbers clearly suggest that's what they're doing. Yeah, we've seen pretty much all of the core business metrics up and to the right. Average order uh, value was $74 in the most recent quarter. Uh, Net orders uh, at just about $780,000 and $450,000 subscriptions. Uh, those are those are big numbers. They're all moving in the right direction, and I think they signal both that uh, once they have customers in the mix, uh, that they are able to kind of get them off of some of those more trial level pricing, which which we've seen with, with their website a little bit, uh, but also expand into um, other applications. You know, basically look for uh, other ways to to kind of help that person live a better life uh, and, and and kind of have the medication and the prescriptions that they might need access to. And all three of those metrics were up substantially over the prior year period. So average order value went from $58 last year to $74 in the most recent quarter. Subscriptions went from 258000 in the year ago period to 453000 So the growth has been huge. And there's no way better way of showing that than by looking at uh, the top line. Essentially, this company generated over two, just under $200 million uh, in, in the last uh, 12 months. That figure was up massively. And importantly, not only are they benefiting from huge top line growth, but the margins are also improving. Uh, last quarter, this company's gross margin was 77%. That is impressive. Yeah. And, and it speaks to the business model. I mean, um, they're they're able to take uh, what would probably be, you know, a dollar fifty or something like that uh, as a prescription and wind up having it be about $4 uh, because of the, the packaging, the convenience as, as an effective rate. Um there, there is good money to be made in operating in that style of business. And I think for the most part, consumers are generally happy to pay it because of the convenience um, that's being offered by the platform. Uh, we talked through you know, kind of the core business. I do want to mention um, they do have a small additional source of revenue beyond kind of the core relationship that they would have uh, with users or consumers, and that's, that's wholesale. And so this is non-prescription product sales to retailers through their wholesale purchasing agreements. And it is not where the growth is. Uh, it makes up about 4% of revenue and is basically flat year over year. Um, overall, though, 70% top line growth for this business in Q2 of 2021. And that's about where they expect things to be next quarter and for the full year of 2021 based on the guidance that we've seen. 
We've seen a ton of companies that are focused on health, telehealth have a phenomenal last 18 months, and this company is clearly no different. It will be interesting to see if that growth rate is sustainable in the long term or if this was just a short-term bump. It is, yeah. And, and I mean, it's been a good time to be in digital anything. Um, I think there were already some natural tailwinds coming into this space, um, and those were only accelerated uh, you know, a lot of things conspiring here. I think the the millennial focus and consumer brand we have we have seen this Brian in so many different spaces. Um, it's not a perfect comparison, but kind of in the way that Warby Parker has a relationship with people when it comes to eyeglasses. I think it's kind of a similar way that you can think about this business uh, and prescription medication. Then you add on to the fact that everyone's looking for digital solutions uh, over the last year and a half. It's only going to bode well for a business like this. Um, when you look over at the balance sheet, uh, relatively strong position for this company, uh, 300 million in cash and equivalents and no long-term debt. I do want to note, they have a fair amount of convertible preferred stock that they've issued in the past few years. I have not dug too deep into that, but it's north of 500 million since 2018. Um, I'm guessing between that and what they've raised in the private markets, prior to this SPAC becoming something that people could publicly invest in. That's probably why we don't see very much debt on the balance sheet. Yeah, that's fairly typical with high growth companies like this. The investors that get in early, sometimes they take convertibles. And at the time of a SPAC or an IPO, basically when they come public, all of that gets exercised and it, be, and it turns into uh, equity. Uh, so that is something that is fa fairly common. But to, to your point, now that the company is publicly traded, $300 million in cash, no long-term debt, their balance sheet is very strong. Yeah, and I think people can probably follow along here and, and quickly connect the dots on why this is a compelling idea. Um, there is what feels like a decent moat here with the consumer relationship that people have, uh, particularly, Brian, because it's, it's an ongoing relationship. Um, this is not a one-time purchase type business. Yeah, this is a uh, company where there are some switching costs. Once you get up and running on the HIMSS platform, once everything is there, your medications are coming through there, you have a relationship with a doctor that you got through there, there are some switching costs to going to an alternative uh, platform. But I think this company, more than many other um, telehealth companies that we've talked about, brand is going to be incredibly important. And we've seen this company really invest in their brand with all kinds of advertising. They're doing a great job of not only targeting younger generations, but also getting getting them on the platform. But I think that that will long-term be a moat for this company. It's still young. They're still building it out. But I think this company will benefit from brand if they can build one up more so than any other uh, telehealth company that I can think of. Yeah. And, and we're going to talk about the risks. And, and this is one of those things that kind of cuts both ways. But I think the ease of use is both a, a kind of a moat for them uh, or, or something that kind of insulates them from some competition, um, but also exposes them to a fair amount of risk. And so, you know, I, I think the convenience factor is massive. Um, a lot of people have gotten very used to things just being able to show up at their door. Uh, and that's, that's a pretty compelling pitch, um, particularly if, you know, it is one-stop shop, both for, you know, the actual doctor visit and where you're getting the medication. Um, that's, it's, it's a compelling value proposition for the user. And I think it's why people are generally willing to pay up a little bit for it. Um, we'll get into it in the risk section, though. It does come um, with some downsides and, and some potential liabilities for them down the road. Um, but, but Brian, looking at the market that this company operates in, uh, no shortage of opportunity. We know healthcare spending is absolutely massive in the United States. Um, and there are some big numbers specifically in the areas that this business focuses on. 
Right now, this is primarily a US-driven business, but the industries that they're operating in are huge. There are billions of dollars in revenue up for grab. They claim that the hair loss industry is a $3 billion uh, industry. The erectile dysfunction industry is more than $4 billion. They recently entered the mental health space, and they said that the anxiety and depression industries are $14 billion opportunities. And finally, dermatology. They made an acquisition in this space, and they're really trying to make to grow out their presence here. This That's a $44 billion industry. When you compare that to the trailing 12-month revenue of under $200 million, there's plenty of room for growth. And importantly, that doesn't even get into the international opportunity, and this company clearly has international ambitions. Yeah. Um, I, I think the story for this business right now, uh, when it comes to customers, is acquisition mode. I, I think that there's probably a lot of education that's that's happening right now, um, and we see that with with the customer uh, figures so far. Um, for the most part, people are, I think, in the last year and a half, having their first experiences with telehealth, and I think specifically um, having their first experiences with any of these, you know, kind of prescription first companies that are telehealth, but it but it's really kind of driven by a desire for a specific medication. Right. You have to have some kind you have to have some impetus for for seeking out this product. You have to have some kind of you're you're seeing that you need a there's a need in your real life and you're going out of your way to, to find a solution. And this is one of the first ones that many millennials are finding. But I always like to think through the relationship between the customer and the company. Uh, first off, is there a repurchase uh, component to this? In this case, I think the answer there is yes. Uh, is demand recession proof? Uh, in my opinion, the answer is is yes, right? It's not like healthcare costs go away just because the economy is going bad. Uh, that's a good thing. And by and large, the company seems to get really good reviews uh, from its uh, from its customers. So the company claims that it has a 4.5 star rating out of five on more than 20,000 individual reviews that were done by a telehealth. That indicates that customers are net promoters of this brand. So I think the relationship between the customers and the company is very good. Yeah, and, and we're generally seeing positive reviews when it comes to um, the the founder and the culture of the business. We have uh, Andrew Dudum and H- Hillary Coles, uh, the two co-founders, still both at the business. Uh, Dudum is the CEO. Coles is uh, the VP, I believe, of merchandising and product. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> um, and and when we turn to Glassdoor and uh, in, and look at generally the perception there, strong reviews, four and a half stars, uh, 100% approval of the CEOs, 90% recommend to a friend. Uh, there are not a ton of ratings because this is <clears throat> a relatively small company, I think, in, in, in workforce and a relatively new company. I mean, we're going on basically like four years of, of operating history uh, with this business, but positive signs so far. Yeah, definitely. And to your point, with only uh, just over a dozen ratings, it's hard to know really what the culture of the company is truly like. But the early signs suggest that employees do like working here, which is always a positive. Yeah. And and I think it's important because, um, as you might expect with with a business like this, founder-led, founder-controlled, right? When you look at at the way the shares are divvied up, Brian, um, Dudum's really in the driver's seat here, particularly when it comes to voting power. Yeah, that's a. There are two classes of of stock here. Uh, the the second class, which is super voting stock, is one hundred percent controlled uh, by the CEO and founder. So he has ninety percent of the voting power. So if you are buying this stock, know that you, as an outside shareholder, truly have no say into into what happens. It's really about the founder and what the founder wants to have happen. Yeah, and there's plenty of skin in the game here. We have double-digit percentage ownership uh, for Dudum. Uh, so, I mean, his incentives are obviously aligned with the companies and the success of the business uh, long-term. Um, 
it is still, you know, in, in the grand scheme of companies that have come public, not a massive business. Uh, I think it's like a $1.5 billion company, Brian, something like that. It, it's it's right around there. And it has been a, a volatile stock uh, since coming public. At one time, this was trading for over $25 per share. At the time of the recording, it's about $7 per share. So the market cap has fluctuated essentially between $1.5 billion and about $5 billion. Uh, right now, it's at the lower end of that range. Yeah, but but certainly a business that is small enough that it could get a lot bigger if everything goes correctly. Um, and leadership would be in a good position to benefit, which generally you want to see uh, as an investor. Um, that's usually a positive sign. Uh, Brian, I, I mentioned a little bit earlier that um, the convenience factor is both an advantage and I think uh, a risk for this business. In thinking through what could go wrong here, um, this this is a nascent space, and so you know, in addition to all of the emerging high growth tech business, um, there there's some kind of very specific uh, medical prescription drug elements to this, and and I think one of the things in particular that is a little tough for me to work through here is it's a consumer facing business, and the draw is the prescriptions for the business. It's not necessarily for ongoing healthcare, and that can warp incentives a little bit over time. That really can. Uh, When the company is both giving you a prescription for a product and simultaneously fulfilling that product, that can create some bad conflicts of interest where the company clearly has an incentive to prescribe, 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 and push out drugs and products that the consumer might not need. Uh, anecdotally, I was in medical sales for, uh, for, for more than a decade. And whenever I walked into a new doctor's office, if I saw in that doctor's waiting room that they were selling vitamins and supplements right out of the gate, more often than not, that doctor was extremely motivated by money. And that just always rubbed me the wrong way. Like, how can you prescribe something to your patients that you're then selling uh, to, to your patients? I like it when the doctor prescribes a drug and it's picked up at a different location. So there's no financial incentive. So if that rubs you the wrong way, you're not going to like that about hims and hers. Yeah. And, and I think the danger there is that in, in creating a business that's driven by prescription sales, you can kind of easily create an industrial complex with the way that the healthcare professionals on your platform operate um, and, and kind of put them in a position where they do run the risk of, you know, over prescribing things um, or being, uh, you know, or prescribing things to maybe people who shouldn't have those prescriptions. Um, and, and some of that, I think, is within the company's control. But there's also an element, Brian, where, you know, if consumers know that they can get access to something and, they kind of know what they need to say in order to get access to that thing. Um, it, it doesn't really matter what hims and hers does to prevent that. It's it's kind of taking a test, knowing what answers you need to provide in order to get the test right. You know, and so that's that's another kind of existential threat, I think, for this business. And that is not, to be clear, that's not a problem just of this platform. I mean, there there are doctors that patients out there that can uh, demand certain types of drugs by saying the right thing. So it's just, I think it's easier to do that on this platform than it is on on others. And there's just that conflict of interest that I think investors need to uh, grow comfortable with. Uh, offsetting that is the fact that the, the physicians that are on this platform, they are not employees of hims and hers. They are actually uh, contracted through a third party uh, called Affiliated Medical Groups. One interesting note about that is the company only has a 
about 285 providers on their platform. That is not a huge number of providers that are there to provide their care. I think that's mostly just the difference between this platform and competitors such as like Teladoc. When you go on Teladoc or Amwell, you need medical care now. And that time between you actually initiating the, the contact and getting and getting connected to a healthcare provider is really important, like minutes uh, matters. With these kind of products, there's not that immediate need. So the company does say if you make a request to, to get connected with the healthcare provider, uh, they can do so within 24 hours. So I think that they can serve a relatively large population with a smaller number of, uh, of physician providers, but that's yet another thing to kind of think through about this company. Yeah, and, and I think also, Brian, it's kind of uh, something that's a product of the scope that they've chosen to launch and operate with to begin. You know, as they expand, I, I imagine um, they will probably bring more providers on as they start being a place where people can come for other forms of medication um, as well. But but I think because they kind of start with a limited menu of what they're willing and, and able to offer to people, um, that's probably a reason that we don't see a ton of providers on the platform uh, quite yet. Um, one thing that I think is is a little bit of like a, a mitigating factor down the road for them too, uh, with, with a lot of this that we've talked about with prescriptions kind of being the draw is, you know, they, they have ambitions of um, expanding more and more into mental health um, it would not be crazy for this to resemble more of a traditional telehealth company um, down the road. It's just that they've had, you know, kind of the initial customer acquisition um, that that started with some of these uh, generic medications um, that that people come to them for. So, like, they, they certainly have optionality, and I think that that would be something that would move them away from some of those risks that we just talked about. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And to your point, they really, they even on their website, they, they call out that you can get help with uh, uh, primary care. So if you have bronchitis or uh, a, a pneumonia or a urinary tract infection or pink eye, ear infection, all of those things, uh, their, their platform can now help you with. Some of those things are going to be much more time sensitive uh, with getting a response than, than, their, than their skincare products or their, their hair care products. So that's a dynamic that needs to be kind of thought through. But again, if they're doing a great job at grabbing a millennials and a cohort of patients that aren't using other providers, there is an opportunity for them there. And we threw out some big numbers in, in terms of opportunity with, with some of these markets. And unsurprisingly, there are other companies that are going after something very similar in the space. Um, they, they are not the only company that is trying to establish that direct consumer relationship, even within the kind of millennial friendly branding, softer branding uh, in the healthcare industry. We have Roe, which owns Roe and Rory, which is incredibly similar to Hims and Hers, focused on hair loss, men's sexual health products, but they also have products and services focused on smoking cessation, uh, weight management. Uh, they have an online pharmacy business for generic medications. They have a women's health um, business, which is Rory. Um, there's also Keeps, which is specifically focused on hair loss uh, and NURCS. I think I'm saying that correctly, N-U-R-X, uh, which is focused on women's health. And then there's also, Brian, Lemonade, L-E-M. O-N-A-I-D, not to be confused with the insurance company, Lemonade, which is spelled like the drink, um, that does similar stuff for men's health, women's health, mental health, and common prescription uh, general health conditions. So that's all to say there are a lot of players, even within this kind of more like millennial focused niche. And then you take a further step out into telehealth, and there are a ton of other companies there too, Brian. 
Yeah, how many have we even talked on the show? I mean, and many of these companies are now publicly traded. Uh, Teladoc is definitely the top dog and first mover in the space, but there's also GoodRx. They've been investing in a telehealth solution of their own. Uh, Amwell is a telehealth company, and even Doximity, uh, they have a, a telehealth component. There's also a smaller company that was pointed out that I hadn't heard of called LifeMD, but that is a that is one challenge I think a lot of these telehealth companies are going to face is the barriers to entering the market are, are getting lower given the proliferation of video. On the flip side, the opportunity for these companies is absolutely massive. So how big of a moat is this company going to be able to build out in the long term? Uh, I don't know. It's definitely going to come from those switching costs and from that branding. But make no mistake, this company has plenty of competition. Yeah, and it's a reflection of the opportunity in front of them, really. I mean, there's there's uh, there's plenty there. It's not surprising to see people making these investments. Um, of course, there's also regulatory risk. I think with with these businesses, um, you know, the the telehealth space is a relatively nascent space, um, and uh, we've we've found a lot of success there uh, in terms of patient outcomes. Uh, it is not unreasonable to think that this landscape could look a little different in a couple of years. And of course, uh, the, the providers in that space are just going to have to react to whatever the market conditions are. We've also seen a ton of consolidation in this space already. I mean, that's one thing that's always irked me about Teladoc Health is they've been extremely acquisitive, uh, believe it or not. But Hims and Harris has also started to become uh, acquisitive. Just recently, they, they acquired a company called Apostrophe, which is uh, focused on dermatology, and another company called Honest Health, which is a UK-based uh, telehealth platform. So this company is starting to be uh, acquisitive. Five years from now, it wouldn't surprise me if several of those companies that we just named, if they merge with each other or if they acquired each other. That's just the nature of uh, where we are in the stage of the business. So that's another thing to watch. Yeah. Um, and, and one thing that I, I do think is kind of interesting um, with with this business being a SPAC and coming public as a SPAC, Brian, uh, is whenever I see that, I do kind of wonder, like, did this need to be a SPAC? Like, could it have been a business that just came public through the standard mechanism? Like, was there a good reason for it to be a SPAC? Um, I, don't have, I don't have a great yes answer to that. I don't know if you do. Nope, don't. Yeah. And and so like not that that's a knock, but it's not like a, a huge sign of confidence for me either. Yeah, a lot of SPACs have been under pressure over the last couple of months. I mean, there was a massive SPAC boom in 2020. This company was clearly caught up in that. And many of those stocks that came public are now down from their, their SPAC price uh, below their all-time highs. But this, I think, is a real business. And if the company can sustain its growth rate in the long term, it will be fine. Uh, so the measure that a company comes public to me doesn't really matter after, say, six months or, or a year. It's really going to be, can this company grow sustainably? And that is a question that we still don't have the answer to. So Brian, when you put it all together, what do you like? What don't you like about this business? Well, I think uh, optically, there's a lot to like here. Uh, again, this is a company that's growing very fast. It's a repeat purchase business. It's founder-led. There are clear signs of optionality. The total adjustable market is huge. I think they're helping to serve an underserved part of the healthcare market. And this company is also clearly good at marketing. And they're doing a great job bringing new customers and millennials uh, on board. On the flip side, I'm worried about that potential conflict of interest uh, that we talked about where they're both fulfilling the demand and um, and creating uh, the demand for their products. There's a lot of competition uh, in this space. And another just big question is, 
how much of their growth, what's their long-term sustainable growth rate? COVID was such a massive tailwind to companies like this. If you look at what analysts uh, believe, they think this company's 70%-ish revenue growth rate is about to slow to the 20s uh, just within a, a year. So is that more realistic? Uh, I, I don't know. But uh, overall, I think that there's a lot to like about this, but I'm not going to be dump- jumping in now. How about you? Yeah, I wouldn't say that I'm a buyer um, anytime soon. But you know, if if the growth rate winds up staying even remotely close to where it currently is, Brian, um, you have a business that's worth about 1.5 billion on trailing sales of 200 million at a 77% gross margin. Um, that's it's pretty darn impressive. Um, I I certainly um, have some reservations about how they do business. And uh, Bloomberg and Fast Company have done some really awesome reporting on some of the potential issues uh, with this style uh, of business model and just um, you know some, some of the things that have come out uh, specifically about HIMSS related to uh, some, some, some off-label uh, uses of medication. <clears throat> so I, I think that it's, it's a tricky space. There's a lot of competition. It's a business I'm watching. Um, it's a business I might just kind of check out and kick the tires on as a consumer to better understand what's going on. Um, could always use a little help making sure my face looks good for video. And so uh, might check out some of their acne cream or something like that. And just just kind of get a firsthand look at how the how the platform operates and how the business operates. Love it. Some firsthand, firsthand <laughs> research. But to your point, this is a roughly $1.5 billion company it wouldn't if you told me five years from now this was a ten billion dollar company, I'd believe you. And if you told me it was a five hundred million dollar company, I'd believe you. The range of outcomes for this company are certainly uh, wide, wide open. So this this could absolutely be a massive winner. Yeah. And, uh, you know, who knows, maybe it's acquired or maybe it does a ton of acquiring it sometime soon. I, I would not be shocked to see consolidation in the space. Um but shout out to Michael and Axel for for throwing this one on our radar, getting us to discuss it. Uh, Brian, shout out to you for joining me on today's show. So it's always it's always fun to uh, hop on and do Wildcard Wednesdays with you. Shout out to future Dylan and his wherever he is in the world. <laughs> that's right. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today. And thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. 